Hello and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people, whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Nick Sherrod, co-founder of Label Sessions. In this episode, Maxine Mackey of Label Sessions talks to Emlyn Nadoni. Emlyn is a design leader who's been applying design thinking for over a decade and is passionate about user experience and social inclusion. Maxine talks to him to find out more. Fab. Um, can you introduce yourself to the Label Sessions audience, please? Who are you? Where where, where are you based? What do you do? So my name is Emlyn Nardoni. I am based in Montreal currently. I am a dual Irish-Canadian citizen, so I like to flip back and forth between Europe and North America, which is always quite nice. And um, I've had many careers, um, but I kind of feel like I'm always doing the exact same thing no matter what career or business it is that I'm involved in. Um, so I'm a kind of recovering academic who okay back into that world. And I guess I bring a lot of that sort of uh, theoretical, philosophical thinking to all the work I do. And I guess the uh, thing I like doing most is talking to people and listening to people. What do you what do you like to talk about? Um, what are you known for? So I usually find that when I go into anything, I'm usually representing the voices that aren't heard, um, are the ones that typically aren't sought out. So it doesn't matter what type of s- scenario it is. I try and figure out who's being left out by this conversation, and then I try and articulate that voice, because usually that voice that's missing is the one where there's the most interesting information that you can kind of gather about whatever it is that you're trying to do. I'm quite curious how you got here because you talked about, you mentioned being a a recovering academic. So you've been a university lecturer, you've been a director of innovation labs like Smart Lab, and you've worked with things like, I think the organization March of Dimes in Canada as well. Yeah. Um, And I think you might have heard a rumor that you also helped manage the Adobe Design Awards as well. Fab. And so tell me more. So I think what you were just touching on around finding the voice of people that aren't part of the conversation and really designing around them. I'm guessing that's what you were able to do a little bit with March of Dimes? Yeah, with March of Dimes. And I mean, that use case is pretty obvious because you're representing uh, people with disability, whatever that means, because it's a very broad church these days. Um, And trying to figure out what it is that they actually want as opposed to what people think that they need. And that's a fine balance often. And it's, you know, determined by things like resources, uh, existing relationships, existing uh, partnerships, for example, when you're working with the government, uh, be it provincial or federal or local. Um, there are all different kinds of stakeholders with different views and how all of these things should be done. And often the people are lost in all of the those machinations and all of those processes and all of those policies and all of those kind of decisions that are made. And no one ever thinks to go and ask them what they'd like. Um, So uh, I worked in their technology um, part, uh, ARM, I guess, which they were trying to establish, which was an assistive technology. And uh, often in the disability world, technology meant a wheelchair. Um, Whereas I kind of brought it more into the sort of digital world because so much of the... uh, benefits or uh, services that people require were, um, you know, you had to apply for them digitally. Um, But yet most of them had very little access to that. So I found that a very interesting uh, area to go into. 
And the other thing that was really interesting is I used to go to, you know, various DEI conferences uh, across the world, people in different, different organizations. And uh, often I'd hear stories from all kinds of people, but I very rarely heard any stories about people with disabilities. So I found that very interesting too, because even within the uh, inclusion conversation, often disability was excluded and not thought of as a, as a whole segment. And essentially one in five people on planet earth have a disability of some kind, uh, be it visible or non-visible. So I thought it was interesting to how a lot of like uh, the a fifth of the world's population is often left out of the, the conversation. And it's a global thing. It's not just in Canada. It's uh, I've noticed it across the world. And so you really seem to have this ability to find an overlooked thing. And I feel strange saying that when we're talking about people living with a disability can be, you know, up to like, you know, 20% of the population. That's not really underlooked. But if they're an underserved population, you're, you've got this ability to shine a light on it for meaningful progress and change and you've done this very clearly with your focus on accessibility and what we're talking about but can I ask like how 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 have you gone about that one thing that you know for me it's I think about bringing the voices for people you're designing in the room but I'm really curious that's just my perspective I'm really curious you, 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 you do this all the time how how did you actually go about doing that I had to build a, in, in this particular role, but this kind of maybe goes to other other uh, problems that I've been involved in solving. Um, I had to build a team. And the first thing I did when I looked at building a team was actually hire people who have lived experience um, and have some skin in the game, but also have, they're not just there as a, as a sort of, an, as an identity, but also because they have the skills to, to solve a lot of these things and they're the most familiar people with it. And unfortunately, the way the world works and the way corporate structures work and government decisions are made and whatever it is, wherever it is, um, the people who need a seat at the table aren't at the table. So at the beginning, it's kind of difficult as a non-disabled white male to go into a role of disability and try and represent the disability voice. But you can kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe one thing I'm good at is sort of empathy understanding of when I hear someone telling me about their personal story um, that I will literally when I'm articulating it to other people I'll be them so another weird career I had when I was kind of hustling in life was acting and I'm not saying I'm acting as that person but essentially you have to assume the role emotionally and um, when I hear people explain things like that I really feel it personally and then I'm quite happy to represent it and then make sure that I bring that person there to represent it themselves. But not again as just some sort of like one individual story. Usually there's hundreds of stories behind that one individual story. And this is the same as any kind of market research. I mean, you know, you can go do some market research um, and that's sort of a broad stroke and it gives you sort of an aggregate view of something. But when you actually get into the behaviors of people, and the experiences with particular services, and you get into customizing things in trying to address that, you um, you bring out these really deep insights. And the best way to keep that insight alive is actually hire people to solve the problem 
and uh, enable them to solve the problem themselves. And uh, then you just sort of, as whatever your role is, you step into the background and let them take over. So some jobs I've had, I've always in my own head planned to replace myself with the people I hire because they're more uh, suited and have more experience of how to do these things. And because I don't care particularly about my own personal career, I know I'll survive. I'll be able to move on to the next thing. Um, I'm happy to do that because I don't want to occupy a space where I'm not the best person to represent that role. It's amazing hearing you talk like this so openly because I don't think um, many people would be honest about that. I'm not the right person to do this. I can enable people to work through a process and then they can do it. it what, I, what I really hear from that is like, I want to allow other people to flourish and then succeed and, and, and move from that. So I'm curious now, what do you have like a job title? Like how do you introduce yourself now, like in a work context and what you do? No, I don't really have a job title and I find labels, ironically, label sessions <laughs> difficult. They put you in a one place, whereas I like to see myself very much as like multidisciplinary. Um, and I shift very quickly from being like a, a customer to an employee to an executive, depending on what it is that I'm trying to get done. Because, you know, often a lot of innovation or change that happens in a program or a policy or, or in a business in a market is overcoming various obstacles within organizations that are trying to implement the change or in people themselves or in their own personal lives. Um, so I would say what I try and always say is I try and employ radical empathy to whatever role I am in. Um, sure, I mean, I'm director of inclusive design in what I do right now, but I don't even know if I'm comfortable with the term inclusive design because it rules out other angles on that, like universal design or human-centered design or living design. Um, so yeah, I, I more try and talk about what problem I'm currently solving rather than what my role in it is. And I can kind of use the role, the term consultant, because that just means you sort of do anything. So tell me, what problems or what are you working on right now? What's um, kind of a, yeah. keeping you busy? So right now I'm working on establishing a living lab framework in North America, um, combining sort of a lot of academic research with uh, practical application because Again, as I said, I'm sort of actually anti-academic in the sense that you produce a theory, goes on a shelf, no one ever tests it. It's like an opinion in, in a lot of sense, even though it's a well-founded opinion. Um, the real truth about it is applying it in the real world and seeing what happens. Um, so in constructing a living lab, what I try and do is create panels of diverse users. And then I try and apply those groups two different problems that come come our way. So sometimes that's in things like retail innovation or accessible retail. And challenging the kind of, you know, assumptions around that is one of the things I'm currently solving. So is a store designed just for going in and buying stuff and as much of it as possible? Or do you design it in a more holistic way and combine it with all the sort of uh, the digital aspects where you can kind of look something up in a website? And then you go to the store or maybe you're adding something to the experience. So they're not just places where you go and purchase something and collect a bit deeper than that. And finding out what various people perceive buying something as 
fundamentally not like how would you like to redesign the store but how would you like to change buying or purchasing or do you even want to purchase something maybe you want to borrow it so it's really really opening questions up as broadly as possible challenging all the underlying assumptions that we just take for granted uh like i said extricating those sort of financial decision making from it so that it's not like a quick decision that has to be made stop you know uh procrastinating and doing too much research um i i really think that that's important to get that done and then to really apply it to the letter of the law and what i mean by that is what the research is what people have said what those deep meaningful insights are because sometimes there's a really small insight that the whole structure of something and changes everything and we live in a world where there's a lot of like you add a, a feature that changes something by 0.1% and we can celebrate that because it's 0.1% better than what it was before. And you can charge for it and you can say, yeah, this is great. We've made a change. It's getting better. It's like a little pain point gone. But I try and look for those broader pain points, and, uh, address those and challenge the people I'm working with to go into that area because there's a lot of benefit to going in the opposite direction to common business logic. So if you sort of design for the edges, you get the whole middle for free, even though that kind of goes against the minimal viable product type of argument where you just get something out there, get it working, and then fix it, out, fix it along the way. And <clears throat> I think it's really important to, especially when you work with diverse groups, um, to address them first. So tell me more about this. This is really interesting. So the so many companies, startups, scale-ups, they're talking about just launching an MVP and getting something out there in the world. There's often an issue for, the MVP is designed also to be the foundation and like step one. But often when other things get busy, it means that MVP plus two plus three plus four can be parked or pushed down the line a bit. Do you think in what you've seen, MVPs, are you saying that they don't typically, um, they design for such a small audience, you're missing the messy middle as well as groups that are typically excluded? Um, I think the MVP is usually done in such a way um, that it's sort of aligned with whatever the capital structure that your company is run on. So if you're a startup, you have a lot of pressure to get something out the door, start getting people on a platform, start having users. But there's also like the, the practical consideration. You want people trying stuff out and using it, seeing how it works. But you try and get it out the door. And what I'm trying to say is maybe you shouldn't get it out the door in a rush. Maybe you should actually design it for not the majority of people because most of these things seem to me to work not just for a niche, but to work for a, like as many users as possible. So it's just kind of broad argument. Now, I know this is sort of like, you know, you might be designing for a niche um, problem, but you're, how many people within that niche problem are you addressing? With? So you'd be aiming for 80% of the people with that niche problem. What I'm saying is you kind of design it for that edge group, and then you're going to get, it'll take a little longer and it's a little bit more complicated initially. So if you're designing a website, instead of just designing it for the common user, design it for someone who's blind or someone who has uh, color blindness or someone who has auditory issues, or someone who's neurodiverse. And then what will happen is other people will find, wow, this website's amazing. And it's not that much more work to do it. It's a little slower, but it's not as slow as people think. 
And then when you release it, you've suddenly got a much, much bigger audience straight from the off. And it's a lot easier to build on something that has that as its fundamental root, like that accessibility in it. Because there's a big difference between accessibility as well and usability. So you could put a, a um, I'll use an architectural example. Um, if you put a ramp into a building for a wheelchair, you connect your checklist. You said, yeah, I put a ramp in. Great. We've got the uh, building code. We can open up the building. The ramp might not be usable to someone in an actual wheelchair. It might have three turns in it. The gradient might be too steep. Um, so they might still need someone to bring them up in a way that they'd need someone's stairs or whatever it is. So you do that with a website as well. You can say, yeah, we have met all the, the kind of common guidelines for what an accessible website is. But if you actually build it into the foundation of the website and it's not an add-on after the fact, everyone benefits from it. So love, people love, you know, like clear text, not lots of pop-ups. Um, they like to be able to use voice as much as possible. Um, and there would have been a lot of more, more innovations that would have come to market if we worked this way from the beginning and addressed. Why do you think that just doesn't happen as much? We're not good at it um, because we don't by default go and search out these people because we're looking at like our biggest market or the most profitable market or the one that we can maximize maybe the quickest. And I think there's an awful lot of like uh, time constraints on everyone when they're willing. And if you look at like the whole corporate structure, it's about quarterly returns, KPIs, all that sort of stuff. And it's very hard to insert genuine innovation into that sort of methodology of working. So it's very hard for people to take time, figure out, you know, what problems are, what problems are actually worth solving early on and what the benefit will be from them. And sometimes solving a problem, like I said, it's a feature, it's easy to roll out. You can talk about it. A marketing department can say, oh, we've released a new thing. We can run a campaign on it. Um, sometimes it's not really that sexy to solve an accessibility issue it's something that's more slow and builds your brand over time because people are understanding oh i quite like using this but i don't know why but it's not because of some shiny feature that you just stuck on it so i think that's kind of it you're, you're kind of like changing the way people generally work and it's a, to do with cadence, I think, too. I was actually thinking a lot about culture, purpose and mission as well must be really important for the in an organization to empower people to work this way or to work differently. I hear a lot of organizations talk about culture, but maybe not always be able to kind of match their walk with their talk. And I'm curious how you think what your view on ways in which culture can be fostered by an organization. Because I think if a process says one thing, and a purpose says another, it must always be hard for those two things to come together. I mean, I, I, when I work with, some, let's say, in a lot of health areas, let's say with uh, health standards or with various health systems, they'll say something like the patient is yeah, the center of our, of our work and we're patient-centered. In the same way that a lot of companies would say we're user-centered. But when you actually get down into the nuts and bolts of it, would you say any experience you've ever had in a hospital has been patient-centered or has it just been about processing the waiting list because there's 10 hours of waiting in a, in a waiting room and it's a bit like a crisis center? And a lot of the time, culture of work is like dealing with crisis permanently 
it's very hard to kind of have a bit of time and space to really be patient-centered in what you want to do. And it's very hard to change things. Like you look at something like uh, patient records um, and the interactions between a doctor and a hospital and a consultant. It's all over the place. Some of it's handwritten. Some of it's on different systems. You have like these legacy servers in a basement somewhere from the 1980s interacting with this very nice digital interface. None of it works. The law doesn't work. The data security doesn't work. The interoperability between different systems doesn't work. Very complicated. And then you throw into all of that the kind of things regarding like liability, insurance, uh, regulations. And it's kind of a bit of a the opposite of a cocktail, I guess. Uh, cocktails are quite nice. This is not very nice. This a is series of like a, unpleasant shots. A <laughs> Like a night out in Sucky Hall Street. Um, For those listening, that's in Glasgow, and Emlyn is unfairly categorising a street where, you know, it, it does have a reputation for, well, I'll maybe leave that for people to Google. It's a, bit of, it's a bit of a mess, and it's very hard to change it. And I've worked in, like, maybe, let's say, more organised systems like this, like in air traffic control, where we were trying to change um how information was basically given to air traffic controllers and how flight information would arrive into Toronto Pearson Airport, for example. They're still using a paper vote system until 12 months ago, uh, which is shocking for the uh, most busy airport in in Canada. Yes, I don't really want to hear that. That doesn't fill me with um, a lot of confidence. It was safe, but it was paper-based. Um, in a lot of ways and these kind of like uh, these punch cards that you put into a machine and someone would sort them out and put them in and it was very hard to change because it was such a busy airport and it was much easier to change in a less busy airport and that typically happens in a lot of business we, you know I think this I, I play with this term a lot in my head but there's nothing really more conservative than a revenue stream and I think there's nothing more harder to change than something that's really busy and has a lot of activity. It takes an enormous amount of planning to kind of build a new system while something's currently in progress. And uh, back to your question about culture, I think something I've always done anyway and noticed kind of works, doesn't matter what the industry is, is when you align employee experiences with customer experiences, you tend to get really good products and services. What do you mean by that? If uh, you're working in a company and you, let's say you're in information technology, you'll often find it's a bit of the, the shoemaker's children don't really have shoes situation where you could be working in an IT support company, but your IT support internally could be terrible. It might be really hard to get a laptop. And most companies I've ever worked in, doesn't matter who they are, for some reason it takes two or three weeks to get a laptop. I don't understand why, but they might be brilliant at providing that service to a client. Um, so if you start innovating internally, because all the business problems you have internally are often the same as what people experience externally, you start to develop really good empathy, first of all, for the problem. So if you're a user support person and you're struggling with a customer and saying like, I've been trying to solve this problem for weeks, you straight away go, oh yeah, I've been trying to solve this problem for weeks too internally. So once you get that kind of employee experience, right, where you actually put them, again, at the center, it's user-centered, it's human-centered, um, you're, as a corporation, being inclusive of your your employees, 
um, that tends to spill over into how they interact with clients. It tends to spill over in how your products are released. It tends to spill over into how your marketing department works with your product development department or how software development um, works with the, the UX team. Because often they're sort of conflated in together. Um, and ultimately there's a crunch and something needs to get done very fast and then someone makes a decision who probably doesn't have all of the information to make a good decision. So changing that is all again, back, back to cadence, back to prioritization. And it really is difficult to change culture, putting up a list of bullet points on a wall about like our company believes in this, this, and this, and this, and this, I'd be really sad if they didn't believe in all of those things. It would sound like a concentration camp or something really terrible if they didn't say we weren't an inclusive employer who cares about people, wants to make great products for their customers. Of course they all do. But do they actually do it? They try, they kind of fail, um, and they have certain priorities that they need to reach every quarter. And that seems to be the death of a lot of good ideas and good experiences. And all that pressure goes back on an employee to work extra hard that week or a customer who's left on a, a phone waiting for an hour and a half um, without a resolution to the problem or talking to an AI chatbot. That's what happens when you don't focus on your employee experience and you don't focus on your customers. This podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentorship, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. Well, I think we're lucky to have you to be able to shine a light on some of these things and especially around where for some groups that aren't designed for and actually the impact when they are kind of a, included in the design process, both as designers and facilitating not just the systems that they'll use, but the systems that everybody will use. Let me ask you a couple of um, quick fire questions now. You have somebody that strikes me as somebody that, I mean, you're so well read and and interested in things where do you go to feed your brain creatively what kind of information do you choose to consume not the vitriol on social media anyway i like reading linkedin in the morning um for my entertainment and sins and i often see even still that that hasn't it's been a bit watered down recently but i do find a lot of interesting information there and i also deliberately follow people whose viewpoints i don't agree with so i think it's always important to kind of fill yourself with adversaries and ideas the opposite to yours i like talking to you know like politically speaking i love talking to conservatives or people who have you know really wild way out their ideas to understand why they think that way and it, do they actually think that way or is it based upon something that's maybe a misperception and usually i find when you engage with all of these different ideas ones that you might find really distasteful and, and other ones that you completely agree with and resonate with um when you kind of play that sort of devil's advocate in the middle you start to understand where it is they're coming from and uh, that usually the problems on uh, that they're experiencing are are the same as the person who seems to have a completely opposite viewpoint this is they have different solutions to it but they feel the same thing and i think a lot of my background I mean, you grew up in ireland uh there was 
all the troubles in Northern Ireland. And a lot of those um, solutions came from the people who were suffering the most from the current malaise in their political situation, which was sort of the working class groups on both sides of that argument. And they were both like, well, we're all poor and we're all suffering from a lack of services and our communities are all um, quite, you know, impoverished. Why is that? Yet we're the kind of the foot soldiers. So they started talking to each other. And once you get the hardest elements, agreeing on we just want, you know, safe, happy lives, uh, our children to grow up in a nice place, um, then you can start kind of doing things because often these decisions go away from the actual people who rely on the solutions. So uh, back to your information. Yeah, I kind of, I, I'll delve into social media, but I'll just see it as one channel of information. Sometimes I'll go and read some trash media, like I'll see what's in the tabloids just to see what those people are talking about. Sometimes when I'm with different people, I'll just see what's, what they're watching. Under, I don't have a television, but uh, when I go home, I watch Coronation Street with my mother. So I understand what's going on in that kind of world, what people who watch Coronation Street are thinking. I talk to people when I'm out. Um, if I'm on a metro, I'm that annoying person who might start talking to you. Uh, just finding out what you think about things. Uh, I like to travel experience different cultures. I've lived in a lot of different countries. I've worked in a lot of different countries, um, almost deliberately so, so that I actually kind of continually challenge my perceptions about things. And then when I run events um, where, you know, you're introducing people to each other and breaking down barriers between people, um, you kind of find out a lot of different information there too. So when you speak to people who've come to Canada as a refugee, or people who've immigrated to Ireland, or people in different parts of Europe who've come, come in various different ways. You just learn lots of different things about their experiences in, in those areas. Amazing. Well, I think at some point you're going to have to tell us all the countries that you've worked in or even visited. Um, I've seen those like maps that you can get where you can kind of scratch away the countries you've visited. And I suspect for you, probably, half the world would be uncovered. Uh, I wish. No, I'm a bit... Uh, I haven't... I've never been to Asia, which upsets me greatly. I've tried to go, and every time I went, there was a crisis or a catastrophe. <laughs> so uh, I, I, uh, I had some so many trips to Japan planned that got cancelled because of the uh, the tsunami. I remember back, and then there was a nuclear disaster afterwards, and I just wasn't allowed to travel, and I never got back there. So there's there's definitely lots of stuff to do, and I'm pretty sure if I do that, I'll probably undo everything I've just said in this conversation. I'll have a totally <laughs> So tell me, what do you think is overhyped right now in your world? Is there, and is there anything that is interesting that's not picked up by the mainstream media? Because I think it, it sounds like the whole like designing for the accessibility or designing with accessibility in mind. I mean, okay, so there's a lot of hype about artificial intelligence and what it means and so on. And it's everywhere. It's probably going to be employed in all the worst ways. What, what do you mean by that? Because people will, will, it depends, first of all, where does all the investment in artificial intelligence come from and what do those people want from that investment that they put into it? So you get those kind of weird arguments where you have uh, a lot of the so-called leaders in AI coming up in front of a U.S. Senate committee begging for regulation. That's kind of weird. That's a weird scenario. That's everything turned on its head because most businesses are always begging for deregulation or keep the government's nose out of it. 
So these kind of arguments turn on their head often, which is very interesting. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting arguments about ESG because all of these things become politicized. So AI within employment, well, it's going to get rid of like all these jobs and people are going to be replaced. Well, maybe, um, but I think the people who should be most, most worried are executives because their decision-making is the one that could be better replaced by an AI. People like doctors and nurses or people who do physical work, they can't be replaced by AI. This is so far away from like replacing a nurse with a robot. You can't do that. So we might start to value um, people who do real work um, as opposed to those you know, BS jobs, as they're called, which are not jobs that are stupid. They're BS jobs, more meaning jobs that don't produce more value than what they extract. And that's a lot of managers who don't really do much. So they're the ones who really should be afraid. But the people who will apply these things are decision makers. So you end up with these kind of interesting uh, kind of stories in the media about AI running wilds, which is not going to happen anytime soon, but people running wild using AI, yes, that's something to worry about. So I'm, I'm afraid of people. I'm not afraid of AI. Um, and that's kind of one of those things that you kind of have to kind of demystify when you listen to the media and you get to listen to the hype. Um, I went to a conference race recently at the world summit on, on AI here in Montreal and, uh, yeah, it was some of the worst presentations I've ever seen by the so-called best leaders in this area. And they were all so specialized that they weren't understanding the implications beyond their specialization, which was also... So were their presentations bad because they were just so specific or specific to a really niche use case? It was more the people representing some of these um, use cases were not very well versed in what it was that they were applying. So they were applying... AI to solve, you know, a productivity issue or a, you know, cost suppression issue. Um, but they didn't really understand what the technology was or how it would affect their business in the long term. Or if you keep replacing roles with AI, what's the, the longer term um, vision for how do you get data and learn about like the problems that you're solving or using AI, for example, in uh, UX research. Um, using AI to basically replicate empathy. How did you feel about that? Well, that's what I mean. So instead of actually talking to people, you go, well, we can just get personas out of an AI and we can ask it to represent, you know, imagine we're someone with a disability. Um, how would you feel about this product and this service? And then they'll, you produce an output and someone will go, oh, we've done it. But no one's actually spoken to the people. So that was the kind of level of understanding. And there was a lot of questions asked in, in that conference. Um, and there were no answers or we'll get back to you. And it's uh, nearly, nearly July and that was in April and I'm still waiting for my emails to come back. Well, I'm not yes. sure when you'll get a response back, but doesn't mean you shouldn't keep trying. Um, <laughs> let me ask you something completely differently now. Um, is there a philosopher that's been the most meaningful to you in what you do today and how you work with radical empathy? Yes and no. So I, I don't know if I can call this philosopher empathetic. I, 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 I used to find 
Karl Marx really interesting, but it was more of how things were, or it was more like he had gathered a lot of interesting philosophers that he'd listened to, and I kind of followed that path. Um, and another guy called Roy Bashkar, who's a philosopher of science, and a, a person called a critical realist. What does that mean? What's a critical realist? Um, essentially, you question underlying theories of white or of, of underlying layers of reality. So you see something happening and you kind of dig beneath to understand what causes it to happen. And often that's becomes what that's how science is done. We keep kind of experimenting, putting something into a, an experimental situation, closing off reality to see if we can prove um, our theory about why something is the way it is like gravity. Um, you know, you put it into an artificial situation and gravity exists all the time. But if you drop something from uh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa, that's not a vacuum, uh, the feather will arrive at the ground a lot slower than the rock. So open systems and closed systems, and that's what he talks about. So um, a lot of the world that we live in right now, in economics, you try and close an open system. You try and close everything off, you remove all the externalities and you make it, a, you simplify the theory so that you can prove something. And what he was all about was, no, don't close the system. Let's deal with the reality of things, which is the system is open. People aren't um, atoms. They have lots of weird biases and subjective thoughts. Um, and you might as well accept that from the beginning. Um, so I found that kind of interesting and it informed a lot of what I thought about. Um, the reason I mentioned Marx is because he was always in his world anyway, trying to represent the underrepresented in that sense, which is, you know, children going to work in cotton mills and coal mines and things like that. And, um, I started looking into the economy that way and saying, oh, who's excluded from this? Um, and philosophically speaking, a lot of people were. So, and it's always kind of gone on throughout history. I mean, there's always been people who've kind of served power um, or been subjected to the power of others. So I find that kind of interesting. Um, except you can't really say that I'm bringing Marxism to work with me. Unless it's a book. It's kind of. Because you could be. Uh, no, I don't think you want to bring the book either. Okay, fine. What would be what title? What title would you give your autobiography? Talking about books. I don't know something like the the lazy empathist, and that's not even a word. That's a word that's uh, sort of translated from badly from French. But like, we don't have a word in English for someone who's just driven by empathy, do we? An empath. An empath. Okay, maybe yeah, maybe my is up to scratch. But an em yeah, I, I like the word. Empathist. I like it. Fair. And what is it about your industry that you love the most and being an empath? My industry, I guess I like, so if I call my, my industry, let's put it research as broadly as I can. Um, I like that you can just jump into completely different worlds on a, you know, almost weekly basis. So you can have a chat with a major sports company and then you can talk to a bank and then you can talk to, um, uh, you know, a, a charity. And it just jumps from um, massive corporations to small not-for-profits with like five or 10 people trying to solve an amazing problem. 
Um, and that's, that's really what I enjoyed most and getting to speak to the people who work in all these places and finding always that there's this underlying commonality about what people want. Um, and usually people just want an easier life. They want to spend more time with their family. They want to live a healthy life. And, uh, we somehow make that very, very, very complicated for some reason. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for um, making the time. We really appreciate it. I will finish with my last question, which um, I ask most people on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Um, right up there. I love it. Very, very weird. Like you're right up there. Freak flag fly. I have a, yeah. I mean, I haven't mentioned some of the jobs I've had in my life, so <laughs> if I was to go into that, you'd be, yeah, you'd go, sure. I didn't need to ask the question. Full fun to show. Thank you so much, Evelyn. So concludes Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast, no matter your platform. And of course, start your journey with us today at labelsessions.com. <laughs>